to our first guest. For years, Jojo Moyes has been one of the UK's best-loved novelists, and with me before you, she has become one of the world's best-loved and best-selling. How many books is it now? How many millions is it now? I'm going to say the number, because you don't want to. It is 10 million books. Very nearly. Incredible, 10 million books. Now, she launched me before you at the salon. Quick spoiler, Will dies, he's still dead. Or is he? Or is he? Uh, she's come here tonight to launch after you. Please welcome Jojo Moyes. Okay. Um, so I've decided to read the first chapter simply because the other chapters may have twists in them that I don't want to reveal just yet. I slightly want some of you to buy the book. Um, so... The big man at the end of the bar is sweating. He holds his head low over his double scotch, and every few minutes he glances up and out behind him towards the door, and a fine sheen of perspiration glistens under the strip lights. He lets out a long, shaky breath disguised as a sigh and turns back to his drink. Hey, excuse me? I look up from polishing glasses. Can I get another one here? I want to tell him that it's really not a good idea, that it won't help, that it might even put him over the limit, but he's a big guy and it's 15 minutes till closing time and according to company guidelines, I have no reason to tell him no. So I take his glass and give him a measure and he nods at the bottle. Double, he says, and slides a fat hand down his damp face. That'll be £7.20, please. It's a quarter to 11 on a Tuesday night and the Shamrock and Clover, East City Airport's Irish theme pub that is as Irish as Mahatma Gandhi, is winding down for the night. <laughs> The bar closes ten minutes after the last plane takes off, and right now it is just me, the intense young man with the laptop, the two cackling women at table two, and the man nursing a double Jameson's waiting on SC-107 to Stockholm or DB-224 to Munich, the latter of which has been delayed for 40 minutes. I'd been on since midday, as Carly had a stomachache and went home. I didn't mind. I never mind staying late. Humming softly to the sounds of Celtic pipes of the Emerald Isle, Vol 3, I walk over and collect the glasses from the two women who are peering intently at some video footage on a phone. They laugh the easy laughs of the well-lubricated. My granddaughter, five days old, said the blonde woman as I reach over the table for her glass. Lovely, I smile. All babies look like currant buns to me. <laughs> she lives in Sweden. I've never been, but I have to go see my first grandchild, don't I? We're wetting the baby's head. They burst out laughing again. Join us in a toast? Go on, take a load off for five minutes. We'll never finish this bottle in time. Whoop, here we go, come on door. Alerted by a screen, they gather up their belongings. And perhaps it's only me who notices a slight stagger as they brace themselves to the walk towards security. I place their glasses on the bar, scan the room for anything else that needs washing. You never tempted then? The smaller woman has turned back for her scarf. I'm sorry? To just walk down there at the end of a shift, hop on a plane. I would, she laughs again, every bloody day. I smile, the kind of professional smile that might convey anything at all, and turn back towards the bar. Around me, the concession stores are closing up for the night, steel shutters clattering down over our overpriced handbags and emergency gift Toblerones. The lights flicker off at gates 3, 5 and 11, the last of the day's travellers winking their way into the night sky. Violet, the Congolese cleaner, pushes her trolley towards me, her walk a slow sway, her rubber-soled shoes squeaking on the shiny marmoleum. Evening, darling. Evening, Violet. You shouldn't be here this late, sweetheart. You should be home with your loved ones. She says exactly the same thing to me every night. 
Not long now. I respond with these exact words every night. Satisfied, she nods and continues on her way. Intense young laptop man and sweaty scotch drink have gone. I finish stacking the glasses and cash up, checking twice to make sure the till roll matches what is in the till. I note everything in the ledger, check the pumps, jot down what we need to reorder. It is then that I notice the big man's coat is still over his bar stool. I walk over and glance up at the monitor. The flight to Munich would just be boarding if I felt inclined to run his coat down to him. I look again, then walk slowly over to the gents. Hello? Anyone in here? The voice that emerges is strangled and bears a faint edge of hysteria. I push open the door. Scotch drinker is bent low over the sink, splashing his face. His skin is chalk white. Are they calling my flight? It's only just gone up. You've probably got a few minutes. I make to leave, but something stops me. The man is staring, his, too tight, his eyes too tight little buttons of anxiety. He shakes his head. I can't do it. He grabs a paper towel and pats his face. I can't get on the plane. I wait. I'm meant to be travelling over to meet my new boss and I can't. I haven't had the guts to tell him I'm scared of flying. He shakes his head. Not scared, terrified. I let the door close behind me. What's your new job? He blinks. Uh, car parts. I'm the new senior regional manager, spares close bracket for hunt, for hunt Motors. Sounds like a big job, I say. You have brackets? Mm -hmm. I've been working a long time. <laughs> he swallows hard, which is why I don't want to die in a ball of flame. I really don't want to die in an airborne ball of flame. I'm tempted to, put, tempted to point out that it wouldn't actually be an airborne ball of flame, more a rapidly <laughs> descending one, but suspect it wouldn't really help. He splashes his face again and I hand him another paper towel. Oh, thank you. He lets out another shaky breath and straightens up. I bet you never saw a grown man behave like an idiot before, huh? About four times a day. His tiny eyes widen. About four times a day I have to fish someone out of the men's lose, and it's usually down to fear of flying. He blinks at me. But you know, like I say to everyone, no planes have ever gone down from this airport. His neck shoots back in his collar. Really? Not one. Not even a little crash on the runway? I shake my head. It's actually pretty boring here. People fly off, go to where they're going, come back again a few days later. I lean against the door to prop it open. These lavatories never smell any better by the evening. And anyway, personally, I think there are worse things that can happen to you. Well, I suppose that's true. He considers this, looks sideways at me. For a day, huh? Sometimes more. Now, if you don't mind, I have to get back. It's not really good for me to be seen coming out of the men's lose too often. <laughs> He smiles, and for a minute I can see how he might be in other circumstances. A naturally ebullient man, a cheerful man, a man at the top of his game of continentally manufactured car parts. You know, I think I hear them calling your flight. You reckon I'd be okay? You'll be okay. It's a safe airline, and it's just a couple of hours out of your life. Look, SK-491 landed five minutes ago. As you walk to your departure gate, you'll see the air stewards and stewardesses coming through on their way home. They'll, you'll see them all chatting and laughing. For them, getting on these flights is pretty much like getting on a bus. Some of them do it two, three, four times a day. Like getting on a bus, he repeats. Probably safer. Well, that's for sure, he raises his eyebrows. A lot of idiots on the road. He straightens his tie. And it's a big job. Shame to miss out on it for such a small thing. You'll be fine once you get used to being up there. Maybe I will. Thank you, Louisa, I say. Thank you, Louisa. You're a very kind girl. He looks at me speculatively. I don't suppose you'd like to go for a drink sometime? I think I hear them calling your flight, sir, I say, and I open the door to let him pass through. Right, sure. Well, off I go then. Enjoy those brackets.
It takes two minutes after he has left for me to discover he has been sick all over cubicle three. I arrive home at quarter past one. I avoid my reflection in the mirrored lift and let myself into the silent flat. I change out of my clothes and into my pyjama bottoms and a hooded sweatshirt and open the fridge, pulling out a bottle of white and pouring a glass. It is lip-pursingly sour. I study the label and realize I must have opened it the previous night and forgotten to stop at the bottle, and then decide it's never a good idea to think about these things too hard, and I slump down in the chair with it. On the mantelpiece are two cards. One is from my parents wishing me a happy birthday. That best wishes from mum is as piercing as any stab wound. The other is from my sister, suggesting she and Tom come down for the weekend. It is six months old. Two voicemails are on my phone, one from the dentist, one not. Hi, Louisa. It's Jared here. We met in the Dirty Duck. Well, we hooked up. Muffled, awkward laugh. It was just, you know, I enjoyed it. Thought we could do it again. You've got my digits. When there is... <laughs> I touch a nerve. Yeah. Oh, okay. When there is nothing left in the bottle, I consider buying another, but I don't want to go out again. I don't want Samir at the mini-mark to make one of his jokes about my endless bottles of Pinot Grigio. I don't want to have to talk to anyone. I'm suddenly bone-weary, but it's the kind of head-buzzing exhaustion that tells me if I go to bed, I won't sleep. I think briefly about Jared and the fact that he had oddly-shaped fingernails. Am I really bothered about oddly-shaped fingernails? I stare at the bare walls of the living room and realize suddenly that what I actually need is air. I need air. I open the hall window and climb unsteadily up the fire escape until I'm on the roof. The first time I'd come up, nine months earlier, the estate agent showed me how the previous tenants had made a small terrace garden, dotting a few lead planters and a small bench. It's not officially yours, obviously, he said, but yours is the only flat with direct access to it. I think it's pretty nice. You could even have a party up here. I'd gazed at him, wondering if I really looked like the kind of person who held parties. The plants have long since withered and died. I'm apparently not very good at looking after things. Now I stand on the roof, staring out at London's winking darkness below. Around me, a million people are living, breathing, eating, arguing, a million lives completely divorced from mine. It's a strange sort of peace. The sodium lights glitter as the sounds of the city filter up into the night air. Engines rev, doors slam. From several miles south comes the distant, brutalist thump of a police helicopter, its beams scanning the dark for some vanished miscreant in a local park. Somewhere in the distance, a siren wails. Always a siren. Won't take much to make this feel like home, the estate agent had said. I had almost laughed. The city feels as alien to me as it always has. But then everywhere does these days. I hesitate, then take a step out onto the parapet, my arms lifted out to the side, a slightly drunken tightrope walker, one foot in front of the other, edging along the concrete, the breeze making the hairs on my outstretched arms prickle. When I first moved down here, when it all first hit me hardest, I would sometimes dare myself to walk from one end of my block to the other. When I reached the other end, I would laugh into the night air. You see? I am here, staying alive, right out on the edge. I'm doing what you told me. It has become a secret habit, me, the city skyline, the comfort of the dark and the anonymity and the knowledge that up here nobody knows who I am. I lift my head, feel the night breezes, hear the sound of laughter below and the muffled smash of a bottle breaking, see the traffic snaking up towards the city, the endless red stream of taillights, an automotive blood supply. 
It's always busy here above the noise and chaos. Only the hours between 3 to 5 a.m. are relatively peaceful. The drunks having collapsed into bed, the restaurant chefs having peeled off their whites, the pubs having barred their doors. The silence of those hours is interrupted only sporadically by the night tankers, the opening up of the Jewish bakery along the street, the soft thump of the newspaper delivery vans dropping their paper bales. I know the subtlest movements of the city because I no longer sleep. Somewhere down there, a lock-in is taking place in the White Horse, full of hipsters and EastEnders, and a couple are arguing outside. And across the city, the General Hospital is picking up the pieces of the sick and the injured and those who have barely scraped through another day. Up here, it's just the air and the dark, and somewhere the FedEx freight flight from LHR to Beijing, and the countless travellers, like Mr. Scotch Drinker, on their way to someone new. Eighteen months. Eighteen whole months. So when is it going to be enough? I say into the darkness, and there it is. I can feel it boiling up again, this unexpected anger. I take two steps along, glancing at my feet, because this doesn't feel like living. It doesn't feel like anything. Two steps, two more. I will go as far as the corner tonight. You didn't give me a bloody life, did you? Not really. You just smashed up my old one, smashed it into little pieces. What am I meant to do with what's left? When is it going to feel... I stretch out my arms, feeling the cool night air against my skin and realise I am crying again. Fuck you, Will, I whisper. Fuck you for leaving me. Grief wills up again like a sudden tide, intense, overwhelming. And just as I feel myself sinking into it, a voice says from the shadows, I don't think you should stand there. I half turn and catch a flash of a small pale face on the fire escape, dark, wide, dark eyes wide open. In shock, my foot slips on the parapet, my weight suddenly on the wrong side of the drop. My heart lurches a split second before my body follows. And then, like a nightmare, I am weightless in the abyss of the night air, my legs flailing above my head as I hear the shriek that may be my own crunch. And then all is black. with my back to the balcony <laughs> towards the end of that room. It's like, I'm not... If you do go out there for a cigarette in the interval, please be careful. Um, so it's a pretty bad start for Lou. I mean, she's had a difficult enough time of it already. Now you're chucking her off a building. Um, but before we, get to, before we get to that, did you always know that you were going to come back to her? No. And to them? No, I didn't. Um, I've never written a sequel to anything, uh, but um, several things mark this book out. One, one of which is that I have had so many emails from people um, since it was first published here, just wanting to talk to me about her and find out what she did and, and basically feeling like their lives in some way corresponded with hers. And so I've always tried to respond to everybody. So this conversation just kept going over a period of years. And then when I agreed to do the script, the movie adaptation, she was in my head all the time then because I was having to adapt it. And so where normally you would finish a book and the characters, you might mourn them for a bit, but then you move on to the next set. She never went. She was always there. And it, literally one morning, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning and thought, well, what if that happened? And then suddenly I wanted to revisit her. Yeah. Can we talk about the voice in the darkness and who that is? 
Um, let's just say it's a voice from Will's past, uh, which, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but... Um, and it is a real voice, she's not totally... Oh, no, it's, it's not, although um, everyone slightly thinks Lou's mad, so there, there is some explaining to do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, she, she does live, spoiler, because it would be a really short book if she didn't. Um, really hey, that's short, Did you not really know? short. And, and she, she does live, she spends a lot of this book working in the horrible kind of Irish-themed cafe, yeah. wearing a green vinyl pixie uniform, leprechaun. The porno say. pixie outfit. Porno yeah. pixie outfit, yeah. which is grim. Um, white, clean, grim. And um, and she also goes to a grief kind of therapy uh, place yeah. in a very desolate community centre. And that felt like so, that felt like a place you'd been. That felt, you know, like you'd done your research. Well, I've never done an actual group, group therapy class, but I have done some of those evening classes in those dank village halls. And I know, uh, not village halls, um, you know, local halls and I know how they smell is that pervasive smell of damp and kind of air of slight disappointment <laughs> yeah and cheap biscuits so yeah all that comes from my own experience yeah um speaking of, you, of your own experience this novel is the of all the novels that you've written um and that I've read of yours seems to me in many ways to be the most personal um the most has has the most of you in it not you now but you I think in your teens and your 20s um, I don't want to give too much, yeah. too much away about it, but there's a lot about the young experience in this book and about fitting in and about families that don't work. Louisa's family isn't working, but there are other families in this book that don't work. Yeah. And, it, and it was really interesting when I was reading it. Very often I visualised you when, okay. I, when I was reading it. Um, well, I'm quite different from Lily, the character who you're referring to, in that she's the teenage girl whose life is slightly at the heart of Lou's recovery. Um, because Lily externalizes everything. She's, she was such fun to write because she does the exact opposite of everything I ever did. I was the kind of good girl who just swallowed my feelings until I was about 30, at which point I regurgitated them in a really ugly way. <laughs> Whereas um, Lily just How kind ugly. of... How <laughs> ugly? No, I'm joking. I'm not going to go into that here. Uh, you go on to British Airways. No, 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 no. Um, no, I just... I, it's really good fun writing someone who behaves badly and Lily kind of behaves spectacularly badly. But one of the things I was really interested in as, as a parent of two teenagers myself and as someone who has watched um, my peers uh, perhaps divorce around me and how well some kids come out of that and how badly some other kids come out of that is is if you don't have parents who have the gift of self-awareness or the gift of reflection, how isolated those kids feel and you know my parents handled their own divorce as best they could but um you know i don't think you ever quite shed that feeling of um i don't know isolation I, you know if you're an only child which i was till i was 20 it's it's quite a big thing to deal with by yourself so i'm sure you know loads of that comes out in my work generally yeah yes it does um and so, so we have the grief therapy. We have the we have the we have the porno pixie. We also have London in a way that we that we that we haven't had before. I mean, I I love the way that you write about the city, the way that you kind of see it from from the outside, from, mm. from Lou's perspective. Um, it does feel like it's kind of almost just over the river. Um, but um, let's talk about the film adaptation. Mm of the first, of not the first book, but yeah. of, of, of me before you. I mean, I've never known you so completely obsessed by something. You were just like Mrs. Hollywood. <laughs> um, it's really interesting this, because I know so many writers have horror stories about having their work adapted. And, and some of it is a horror story, you know? It, it's a bruising 
experience, but it's also... What's hard about it? I mean, it doesn't seem that hard. Somebody uh, comes up and says, I want to give you lots of money to make your best-selling novel into a huge, beautiful film. I am struggling. Because it's the... Um, no. Yeah. It's, it's the process is hard. If you are somebody who's spent 15 years working by yourself and basically playing God, yeah. to have other people come in and go, no, 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 your character can't do that. You go... Yeah, yeah, they can. They're mine. Um, and what you have to learn very quickly is... Do they is, really hey, do that? Do they really kind of well, have quite that? in those ways. No, because no, nobody in Hollywood speaks like that. They go, okay. Jojo, we love that. We just wonder whether you could maybe bend this a little way. And you, you start to interpret the speak. And actually what they mean is we really fucking hate the way you write that scene. <laughs> just do it a different way. Um, but my background is journalism, where people yeah. would just say, this is very shit. Direct. Do it, yeah, do it better. Um, but I, I actually quite liked it, um, because once you understand the language and you understand that in the pecking order, even as the author of the book, you're actually down there with the drivers and the T-boys. Really? That, yeah, you just, you just get on with it. And, um, and it was really exciting. Just, I mean, the thing I loved about it most was just the communality of it. If you work by yourself in a room, and there's loads of writers in here, so they all know what I'm talking about. If you spend half your time in your pajamas in your back room, being totally disrespected by your kids because they don't believe that you do a real job, <laughs> and um, you know, being told everybody interrupting you because you don't do a real job, and then suddenly to go to a, you know, to Pinewood where we filmed it, which was kind of exciting. So I never ever got over the thrill of driving down Goldfinger Avenue every morning, oh. <laughs> and having you had my your own chair. I had, and I had my own chair and my own parking space with my name on it. You know, it's like yeah, the number of selfies. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So there are compensations for being the lowest in the pecking order. But the fact that you get to say good morning to kind of 58 people who all are interested in the same thing that you're interested in, which is making the best movie they can make, yeah. that is the most fun you can have. And actually, seeing your characters alive is totally surreal. Like, we had this thing called a pre-shoot where they invited me to come along. This before I knew I was going to be on set every day. And it was at Old Street. And um, I thought it was going to be like eight people and a dog. And then I get a thing called a call sheet the day before, which is sort of 58 pages long and contains health and safety and a massive list of everybody. And I just thought, oh, I don't know what that is. And I arrive at this kind of parking area. And they said, oh, we're sending a car for you. And then this limo comes round, and they get, get in the car, and we'll take you to the set. And then you turn up. And there's 120 people, there are rain machines, there's a stuntman on a motorbike, there's food trucks, there's an ambulance, there's just... Uh, and then there's Will, like my lead character, walking down the street looking very handsome in a suit, um, in the pouring rain, and you go, these people don't just exist in here anymore, they're like real people for all these... And other people know more about your characters than you do. It's like, no, no, he wouldn't have his hair like that. And I'm like, yes, he would. <laughs> I made him. Yeah, I, I made can him. Decide on his but you can't say that because he's not yours anymore. Tell you know, us who you the give cast him. Is. Um, well, Will is played by a, a very handsome, lovely young man called Sam Cleflin, who was in Hunger Games two and three, I think. He, he's. You said I think. Yeah, and, um, and the character, the hot man in your new novel is also called Sam, I'm just putting that I know, there. I think that was pure coincidence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, Lou is played by Amelia Clark, who you will possibly know as um, Daenerys Targaryen, um, the Khaleesi in Game of Thrones, uh, but without the £20,000 wig on. Um, I got to find out all about the wigs. Nobody, nobody in Hollywood has real hair. This is the best thing you discover. <laughs> so everybody has fake hair, all the actors, that's not their real hair. That was the most exciting thing to discover. Even, even the man? Um, pretty much. Even yeah. all no, the Sam's hair, hair all was real. I didn't look at their pubes, Damien. Yes, you did. I didn't. <laughs> you weren't doing your job. Uh, I, no, did accidentally, I did accidentally end up in 007's um, changing room once. 
He wasn't in there, really, disappointingly. Even the second time I accidentally ended up in there. Um, but they were along the corridor from us, so, you know, it got really confusing whether to go left or right. So. Now, it's hard to talk about this book without revealing too much about it, yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to give any, any, okay. any spoilers about it, but I do want to kind of finish by asking you one, one more question, okay. which is, you didn't envisage writing a sequel. Yeah. Do you again envisage, are you leaving it here or are you going to take it further? Because not everything is resolved. No, no, uh, I, have, I have an idea for the third book, but it will slightly depend on whether, you know, this one sinks like a stone or whether people, I mean, I think people are going to disagree with some of the things. No. <laughs> well, you don't know, do you don't know? I, it's I, love that you, I love that that's still how you are, that you are not a total shit about it. <laughs> that you're sitting there, you're reading, you were shaking, and you've been so nervous <laughs> and excited about the whole thing, you don't take slightly any sweating. of it for granted. And, uh, no, no, it's the beauty of having been a mid-list author for 10 years. If you've been a mid-list author, if you've not troubled the bestseller list for 10 years, believe me, you don't take anything for granted. You know, it's, it's nice to be here. Um, so there might be another, there might be a third. I, I might just write it for me if nobody wants it and I'll just put it out on the internet. <laughs> People will uh, yeah. want it. Questions for Jojo. Sylvia, of course, looking like a My Little Pony tonight. Like a, ra a radioactive Very My Little Pony. <laughs> Sylvia. <laughs> Where, where, where are the actors as you thought the characters would be, always or not? I think this is where I was really lucky because um, they spoke to, I think, 260 different actors. I mean, some really big household names as well. I got to see all the audition tapes. Um, so I was just like sitting there, looking, feeling really superior and going, <laughs> no, he's got a really strange mouth. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, you become that person in episodes. It's horrible. You become the monster. Um, but um, with, they basically said to me, tell me who your top three are and when Amelia showed up she was the only one and so I then entered this kind of period of paralysis because I was terrified that they wouldn't like her and luckily everybody felt the same way um, there's something kind of magic about her she's just she's naturally very warm and she's tiny and she's kind of she's rounded she's not skinny you know she's a proper person and um, yeah and she just everybody fell in love with her men women cameras dogs you name it we, we were just all in her thrall by the end of it yeah uh, I'll take one more question Tom yeah Yeah, did you, I mean, you were parallel processing, weren't you, the, the novel and, and, and the film? To an extent, there was some overlap, I think. Yeah. Um, did, they, did, did the two interfere with one another, or...? No, I mean, in some ways it was easier because I didn't have to revisit any of the characters. They were all in my head. But, um, no, I would be very surprised, if I'm honest, if this one makes a film, because it's very different and it's um, a bit darker in places and I don't think it's as photogenic, you know, or filmic. Um, so, no, I, I don't think you could write thinking that it would be made into a film. I c you can only write the story that you feel you should write. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think this one will be a film, but I'm absolutely okay with that. Yeah. And also the thing that the, the, the event that the plot turns on, the thing that's at the centre of the book, would mean that it had to be a film for people who were 18 A little and bit above, older, yes. I think, probably. And also, Lou has sex in this book. I'm just going to put it out there. She, she has a lot of hot monkey hot sex. sex. Yeah. She's yeah. really hot not sex. Not with a monkey, yeah. No, not no, with a monkey. Does, no. But the man that she has hot sex with keeps chickens, which made it extra hot for me. I did that for you. <laughs> Thank you, Jojo Roy.